So welcome once again to our podcast, the NHL Executive Suite. I'm Deb Placey, and it's time once again to open the door and go inside the Executive Suite where we find the longtime goaltender, Stanley Cup champion, and now the Executive Director of the NHL Alumni Association, Glenn Healy. Hello, Mr. Healy. It has been a long time, Deb. I know, I know. I I think the last time I saw you, I was stumbling down the streets of Pittsburgh for a Stanley Cup championship, and you, you might have rescued me. Got me back safe and sound to where I should have been. Well, so, um, you know, I was going to save this for the end, but I'm going to tell the story now. My favorite Glenn Healy story. Maybe we'll tell it off the top. Yeah, yeah, because people stop listening when they hear <laughs> it for the fourth minute. So, <laughs> so Let's start with a bang. Here we go. It might have been an all-star game. Maybe it was the Stanley Cup final. So uh, the league sort of had this after-hour party after one of the games, and, uh, you know, it's a nice event, and a bunch of us were all there. And, you know, they had this room with, you know, tablecloths over all the tables and then one tall table with like three tablecloths. That was the bar. And we were sitting at a table and I think it was Mike Johnson and maybe Marty Turco, if you remember this. Yes. We were with the NHL Network and somebody from the league came around and was telling the tables, you know, it's going to be last call. Came to our table last call and you just, without saying a word, you got up and walked right to the bar. Yep. <laughs> I'm a determined man with a mission, of course. And, yeah. you, and you came back with like with three bottles of beer on your arm and two drinks Mm-hmm. And Mike Johnson and I looked at each other like, oh, that was so nice of you to bring us one. And you're like, these, these are for me. Did you guys want something? Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> me first. <laughs> you last. Uh, I miss those days. Uh, the NHL puts on a good show when it comes to all their big events. And uh, I, I clearly miss those days. I, I got to get back to that. I don't know. Uh, I'm missing something. However, oh. uh, those are good times. Uh, yes, definitely. Yes. So You know what? Here's, here's how it goes for... You know, you get on the road for two straight months. That's the Stanley yeah. Cup playoffs. And you don't get home. Sometimes have to fly on Southwest Airlines, where, <laughs> you know, the first 12 people on the aircraft are all in wheelchairs, and then when you land, it's the Hallelujah Airline. No one has a wheelchair at the other end. They all, they've all been cured. And it's the worst airline um, that you could fly. However, uh, that being said, that's two months of what you've got to do to make things happen. And so, yeah, no, it's uh, those are good times. Uh, they, that we we had good times back in the day. Yes, so, absolutely. To be continued. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, so to give everybody an idea of um, now that I've told my favorite Glenn Healy story, we'll get you to tell some stories. I sort of see you, Glenn, as uh, someone who's had a lot of phases. Like you had a playing phase, broadcasting. Now you're in a leadership position. You almost ran for office, right? You almost had a political career. Yep. <laughs> thank, thank goodness I came to my senses. <laughs> so, so we'll talk about that. You play the bagpipes. I know. Do most people know that you do that? Uh, no, no. Um, which is kind of cool, right? Oh, it is. Uh, I, it is. I, I for years, uh, you know, I'd go to the Highland Games and we compete, and uh, you know, I, I could. You know how people talk about you, and you can hear them talking about you, and you're going, like, I can hear them talking about me. Yes. And people would be in like a beer tent and saying, "Is that Glenn Healy?" and you know, the guy beside me go, no, Couldn't be. way too short, way too fat. That's not Glenn Healy. Like, He's talking about me. It's me. Yeah. Yeah, it is me. Uh, and, and that's okay. Uh, I hid for a long, long time in that bagpipe world where I could just go and play and have fun and do my thing with pipe bands until uh, it kind of got out on the uh, stratosphere and the airwaves, and then that was it. Then it was like, okay, now the hockey world became the bagpipe world. But Honestly, it has led me all around the world, playing in places like Vimy Ridge for the 90th and the 100th. It's led me to uh, getting a chance to be on stage with Paul McCartney. Wow. When was that? 
Uh, we did four concerts with Paul. Really? And, um, you know, just kind of, well, Mullican Tire is the song that uh, the bagpipes play with him. And just, it, w- it was just the neatest thing to be able to be up on stage with, like, literally, I consider myself now the fifth Beatle. I am the fifth <laughs> Beatle. Forget that other guy who played drums and they got rid of him. No, it's me. What, and, city, uh, what cities were you in? Or were you in one place? Uh, yeah, we were, you know, Toronto was our, kind of the, where we did it the most. The last time I played was at the Air Canada Centre. And uh, it just, you know, just a, a phenomenal experience to get a chance to play. It was kind of neat because the uh, the manager of the band said, okay, here's the scoop. The last set's going to be Band on the Run yesterday. It's going to be Mullick and Tire and Let It Be. I'll come get you at 11.14. And truthfully, at 11.14, here he came, got us right to the stage. Mullick and Tire, there's a 19-beat hold where just all you hear is drones. The band comes up from below, below the stage, and uh, you start playing the song. And then you finish, and you think, did I just do that? Yeah, I did. But, it, you know, it's kind of neat because it's, it's, you know, when you play with a hockey team, that, that's kind of the way a hockey team is, right? You know, your, your teammates, your bandmates, your fun, it's friendly, it's great. And then, you know, when you finish doing what you've got to do, you, you go out as a group together. And so that kind of took me from on the ice with my team to off the ice with the team that, I mean, granted, we're all playing bagpipes, so we're not really quite as cool as we were in the NHL, but it's taken me everywhere, taken me around the world, which is great. Uh, probably one of the biggest highlights was uh, the first year for 9-11. We played a concert at Carnegie Hall, and the last song we played was New York, New York. Wow. All of us wearing Ranger sweaters. Really? And uh, the, the great thing about it, Mike Richter came, Brian Leach came, and Leachy said to me after the show, that's the first standing ovation we've had since we won the cup. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thanks, Leachy. Great stuff. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, New York, New York, Carnegie Hall, all wearing Ranger sweaters. It was it was pretty special. Now, why did you hide it at the beginning? Were you worried that your teammates would, would razz you about it? Like, who wouldn't razz you about it? I mean, it, could, it couldn't be the, the most uncool thing you could ever do. Uh, no, I, I just think it was, uh, it was a hobby, right? It's one of those things you just do for you, and it's not a hockey thing. It's, it's just, you know, being one of the group. And so it wasn't a matter of, of hiding it, but it was more you could hide it because that group, that the eclectic group that follows bagpipes, that's not the group that's watching Hockey Night in Canada on a Saturday. I'm sorry. They're not. They're coming up with new medleys and tunes and harmonies, and uh, they are, uh, they're a different sort than the group that tunes on on a Saturday to watch Don Cherry do his rant. It just is different. Do you feel similar, uh, as you're talking about being part of a team, because you put on the whole, it's like putting on a uniform, right? It's a kilt and, and yep. all. And what, what is that like when you sort of transform into that? Uh, oh, very comfortable, I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> Not exactly like I'm wearing one of those suits they made in Sweden that are skin tight and you feel like you're going to go do a yoga class. <laughs> no, it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, you know what? The uh, uniform is what it is. Uh, we've got all level of dress from the feather bonnet with the number one dress where I feel like I'm going to pipe in the queen, and we have done that. You piped in the queen? We've piped in the queen, yes. And I put that feather bonnet on and hated every minute of it. I felt like I was... Uh, sausage in a sausage casing because, you know, I gained some weight since the day they bought me the uniform. And, uh, and, and then to everything from, you know, where you're wearing a T-shirt and you're you know, doing a, a, a sponsored hit for Labatt's or Molson and, and here you are just, you know, letting it all out. But, no, it's, uh, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a kind of a, 
it's a neat thing, right? There's those moments when you're playing, and it's pretty good, pretty damn good. And you say, really, this is what we're doing, and this feels right. And so we get a lot of those moments. I've had a few of them. Vimy Ridge, uh, I can't believe that, you know, back in World War I, the Canadians took that ridge. You know, I stood there, and I, I looked at the gravesides of all the, the – the, the kids that fought, some of them were 15 and 16, because you know, it was the end of World War One, and you know a lot of them were. You weren't get, getting the 30-year-old who was healthy and ready to go. Like they, they, we'd got rid of them, or someone else had, and it was like just who can fight. And looking at the gravestones and seeing the names, and then looking from the the distance from the the, the German line to the, you know, the Allied line, uh, you could throw a football. And they were just dropping bombs and armaments day after day, hour after hour, and thinking to myself, how did these guys do this? Took the ridge and changed the world. That was supposed to be the great last war. It wasn't. But it was an honor to play there. Pretty sobering. Uh, Beyond belief. I I can recall there's a little town outside of Vimy Ridge. It's called Arras. And that's where the first uh, victory parade went through. And uh, we, uh, we had a victory parade uh, on the 90th. And I can recall sitting in the little center square. That's the way it was in Europe, right? They've got these city squares where that's where everything happens. And the gentleman told me, yep, uh, today there will be about 400,000 people here. And I thought, really? You're making this up. Did we even put 400,000 people here? So they moved us to a military barracks to kind of tune up and then make our way down the streets and, as we made our way down the streets, it was, you know, 10 deep and 12 deep and 14 deep and 20 deep. And I thought, uh, uh, this, this guy's right. There's a lot of people that's going to be here. The Queen was there. The Prime Minister was there. The President was there. And uh, as before we went in, we were the last band in. We had about 30 RCMP horses in front of us with the Canadian flag kind of shaved on their back rump. And uh, the gentleman wow. stopped us and then said... Okay, you're clear to go. And the announcement was, ladies and gentlemen, Canada. And the ovation was something I'll remember the rest of my life. It was absolutely spectacular. Uh, I went then to the city square, uh, had a few libations, I'll I'll be honest. Uh, Couldn't really drink any of them because I had no room in my hands to put them to. (laughs) We had so many, everyone was buying us stuff. And there was a a lady up in one of the windows called us up. About four of us from the pipe band went up and... Uh, she had a whole set set up with champagne and food, and she was in that window when she was four years old, watching the Re- actual victory parade and walk by. How old was she when you when you were there? Oh, she was in her nineties, and she's giving us. She gave me a pocket watch and crystal. I, I mean, I gave it all back, but it was. It, I said, "Look, I'm just a piper. I never fought, but that's what it meant to them." That's what meant to her. And at that, like that moment, I, I tell you, there's, there's very few moments in, in life you look at and you say, that was special, but that was really one of the most special moments I think I've ever had. But listening to the announcer say, ladies and gentlemen, Canada, was just uh, one of the most special things I've ever had. So thank goodness my parents let me play the bagpipes when I was a kid. So I'm going to give them full credit for that. Great memories. So wonderful that they had you do that. And were they supportive of your hockey career? I always like to ask goalies, how did you become a goalie at, at first? Why were you a goalie? Were, were your parents supportive of it right away? Well, when I first started playing, I, I played in a church league. And um, 
all the kids played. So my dad said, well, you know, Glenn's got to play. All the kids are playing, so let's get him on skates. Uh, my first set of skates. And, you know, when you turn five, is there anything you really can remember when you're five? Not much, right? It's a long time ago. Most people have one or two things, yeah. right, that they've remembered their whole life that happened to them when they were four or five, but yeah. just one or two, right? I remember crying my first day of school, right? I remember that vividly. But you're, you're so outgoing. How, why would you? Would you <laughs> I don't know. Were you not bad, outgoing at five? School. My parents took me to a bad school. <laughs> uh, and I'm just kidding. And then I remember the first set of skates I had were a set of Gordie House skates. My parents gave them to me at Christmas, and uh, that night I went skating. That was like a vivid memory. Outside. My dad, yes. My dad forgot to get them sharpened, which would have been a, a key point <laughs> to me making the NHL. He didn't know till the end of the year when the coach went, Joe, you never got these sharpened. <laughs> well, in his Scottish accent, I bloody didn't know I had to. <laughs> yeah, you have to. So, anyways. Uh, so, you couldn't skate, so they made you a goalie? Well, exactly right. So, we had the two-minute buzzer uh, thing where you'd go out and skate around and then the buzzer would go off, and you go off. And I would get back to the bench, and, oh, I'm back on. But I didn't quite get back to the bench. And then, oh, you're off. And, again, didn't quite get back to the bench. Uh, I, the entire first year that I played, I never touched the puck. And my dad said, well, put him in net and let the puck come to him. And that was it. And I became a goalie. That's a great story. A lot of guys will say they like the equipment. You no. know, they... Oh, gosh, we were Scottish. We had... I had a set of pads that my dad got from the Legion that just happened to fall off a truck. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, okay. that kind yeah. of truck. Now, these pads were for a 16-year-old, and I was 7. Wow. So they basically came up to my chin, <laughs> which is fine. Okay. So you just have to stand there and kind of, you fall down, maybe you don't get up, maybe you do. That being said, when I got to be 16, they were like below my knees. Oh, you and still I had the same ones. My, I said to my parents at the time, "Yeah, I need a new set of pads. Like I'm getting hurt. I'm getting hit with pucks in the knee, and it, it, pucks hurt, and guys can shoot the puck. And my dad calmly looked at me and just told me to catch the pucks. Don't use your pads. <laughs> that was his excuse for how I got better and how he didn't have to buy me a new set of pads. It was perfect. That is uh, good. You don't hear that every day. No. Don't forget this equipment looks cool, and you got a nice paint job. Not in the Healy house. No, 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 no. 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 Set of pads that fell off the truck and catch the pucks, and um, and then we'll figure it out at the back end. You sort of made ends meet. Is that is that a oh, fair? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the way we rolled. Yep. Um, you know, really didn't have a TV for the most part, and the whole family. It, it it was quite hilarious. We'd all get in the car on a Sunday and three o'clock and go listen to little breath of scotland because my dad had a radio in the car both parents would be smoking and it was just like what are we doing <laughs> this is like child cruelty isn't it no <laughs> did they roll down the windows at all or no oh no God. oh no Too cold. <laughs> yeah, keep the window shut yeah here we go um uh, you know hey great parents yeah. uh they love their tradition love their culture and uh, and how the hell i made it to the nhl i don't even know deb uh, but Somehow I did. Here we go. <laughs> so you were undrafted. How did, how did they miss you? Now, you know, that was going to be my question, but I guess now I know how they missed you, the scouts. Uh, well, it's just uh, the birth defect I had. <laughs> I don't know if you knew about it. Uh, it's called lack of talent. <laughs> what it's called. Yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just. Were honestly, you diagnosed early? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I actually finished university after my third year. Um, I had a degree in marketing, and I was done. But I still had a year left on my scholarship. I went to Western Michigan. Right. Still had a year left, and, and I thought, well, like, you really have nowhere to go. I, I guess I'd go out and get a widget job and go sell that. But I thought, <laughs> stay. I got a finance degree, too. And so I stayed one extra year. And it just so happened that uh, we played Bowling Green in the CCHA Championship. And Dave Ellett and Gary Galley were part of Bowling Green. And I had a game. I don't know why. Haven't had one since. <laughs> uh, it was one of those days that just, what happened? Someone else played that night. It wasn't me. And, uh, and so as a result of that, uh, Rogie Vashon, who was the general manager of the LA Kings, he kind of looked at Pat Quinn and said, sign him. That was the game. I, he's the best player. Sign him. And that was it. Then the journey began. So, don't know why I had that game. Haven't had one since. Never have one again. Uh, but it just so happened that night. It was a, it was a special night. Well, the stars aligned, and so you go to Los Angeles, right? I go to Los Angeles. I have my yellow pants, my yellow sweater, <laughs> and uh, we are full of guys that have about 700 penalty minutes each. <laughs> and we are a lousy team, but boy, we could beat anybody up. And uh, you know, kind of a unique experience. And then Wayne shows up, and oh boy. The world changes with one guy, and we became a team with instant credibility, started wearing sweaters that were cool. Everyone wanted to wear the black and silver of the L.A. Kings, and you know our, our Meet the Kings night that first year, we had Ronald Reagan and John Candy and Paul Lank and Neil Diamond, wow. Glenn Healy. <laughs> you can recall pulling up that, the, the night where we, we had our Meet the Kings in Beverly Hills, Paul Gay, Paul Fenton, Lyle Fair, myself, in my black Ford Escort with no air conditioning, <laughs> and the paparazzi taking pictures, and I remember getting out of the car, and I could hear the press going, who the hell are those guys? <laughs> uh, we're the team. Like, we're, this is the reason you're here. I mean, granted, I didn't sing. I'm just a lonely boy, and, uh, you know, uh, forever in blue jeans, but we, we matter. It didn't really matter. But uh, those are good times. It was a transformation of a team. And Gretz transformed the league when he went to L.A. What do you remember about what he was like when he first came there? Well, I sat beside him in training camp. Uh, We were in Victoria. That's where training camp was. And we had more reporters the first year uh, than they had at the Stanley Cup final. And so all of them were standing on my equipment trying to interview Gretz. And so I spent the entire training camp telling reporters, Hey, please get off my pads. Would you please, please don't stand on my helmet. It was, uh, it was an absolute gong show <laughs> with, with Gretz. I mean, then asking the stupidest questions. Oh. You have kids. Are they going to be Canadian or American? Oh, wow. Like Who are they personal going to be Democrat question. or Republican? It just, it was, are they really going down this road? Yeah, they are. Yeah. So, uh, but Gretz was gracious in every way. And, uh, you know, for me, um, yeah, I guess they broke in a set of pads. There's so many of them stood on them. They were, they were ready to go by season starting. But it was a, uh, it was a different time. We went from a team that was mediocre, that didn't sell any tickets to games, to selling every game out and being the team that everyone wanted to see. Did the guys play better when he came? Did the other players start to play better? Uh, you, ha- have you met Wayne? <laughs> Do you think you have to play better? Yes. 
The only records he doesn't have are coaching ones and goaltending ones. The rest of the records are his. Right. So, yeah, well, there was this uh, – Sort of he, no, com- I, I can he demanded thinking. that – that oh, yeah. Kind of, yeah, uh, yeah. Hey, it, I, I went to the level of I thought if he scored to me in practice, I was gone. Intr- yeah. I think I tried harder in practice against him than against teams when I played them during the regular season. Uh, yeah, no, he was uh, – it was exceptional. Just changed the whole outlook of the team and, and what we were and how we were to be and how we acted. And, uh, and, and the, the proof was in the pudding. We beat the you know, Edmonton Oilers in the first round in Game 7. They were the Stanley Cup champs. We knocked them off, and uh, things moved from there. And the next thing you know, the league went from 16 to 21 to now we're close to 32 teams. So, Wayne, you provided a lot of jobs for a lot of families. <laughs> Thank you. What, what was Los Angeles like? I can just see you, this kid from Ontario and the beach. Are you surfing? Where'd you live? Oh, I'm a Scottish guy. You think I'm going to the beach? <laughs> you get sunburned. Hey, I was walking from the Zing. car to the rink. I got a sunburn. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't uh, getting a suntan. You lived under surfing. a shade. You uh, lived under a shade tree. No chance. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the way the Healy's book their vacations today. How much shade is there on the beach? <laughs> there a lot of shade okay we have a chance of going to mexico yes maybe cabos is the place to go but there's got to be shade you, you no, prepay that, that, your umbrellas we book, our, we book our vacations that way shade <laughs> people are like all-inclusive free bar lots of dancing i'm a shade we have shade <laughs> and we can go yeah so no uh it really wasn't um you know and, and back then you know you were so paranoid about like showing up with a sunburn oh gosh that would be sacrilegious he's got a sunburn he's taken his day off and he's relaxed that can't happen Ooh, ooh, no interesting uh, it, okay it has changed the the psyche has changed since that day so then new york so you're like you hit all the big cities you go to you go to the islanders first what do you remember most about your days with the isles and the playoff run and everything uh playoff run was was phenomenal um can't believe we actually beat pittsburgh to this day can't believe it uh, they can't I, believe it either, but <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I can recall. And we had no Pierre Turgeon. He was our best player, and and Dale Hunter hit him. Right. You know, seventy five minutes after he scored the game, the the series clinching goal, and and said he still had the puck. Uh, Dale, I'm gonna. I'll digress. He didn't have the puck. The series was over. We were doing the handshake line, and he hit him. Uh, so you know that was a, a time when we go into that Pittsburgh series and no idea whether we we're you know, going to have even a chance. And they're a dynasty. They've got everybody on their roster from Lemieux to Francis to, to yeah, just go down the list. It just Yager. It was just a who's who of, you know, guys that are in the Hall of Fame. And I can recall Al Arbor before the series started, putting a chair in the middle of the room, sitting down on the chair and asking each, started with Pat Flatley and asked Pat Flatley, can you tie a shift with Lemieux? Platts looked at him plainly, and said, yes, I can do that. Okay, Ray Ferraro, can you tie a shift? And he went around the room and then said, good, first period's done. Let's go to the second period. And then basically said, by the time we get to game seven, all we need to do is win one shift against Lemieux. And David Volek won that one shift, right? Scored that big goal, game seven, in overtime. And I thought to myself, this Al Arbor is a genius. That's brilliant. He called it, yes. Brilliant. So, you know, we were a young team. Uh, the dynasty was gone. Most of the stars from the Islanders were, were finished with, uh, with the group. And, you know, we, uh, we were trying to just you know, build up ourselves, trying to 
figure our way through this. And, we, you know, we had a, probably the best coach, I would say the best coach ever in the history of hockey, and he was leading us, father figure to most of us, and uh, just it was a great experience. It really, really was. I, I was sad to leave the aisle. It was not my choice, but it was sad because we had started to build something pretty special. He's the best coach you ever had? Mm-hmm. Nobody better. Yeah. No one better. He was a mentor in every way to every player. He knew when to put his hand around you and, and comfort the times when you were troubled. And he knew how to stick his foot firmly up your ass. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Those weren't particularly good times. Uh, but I tell you, he had a presence that was like none other. When he walked into a room, uh, it was all eyes forward. There is no mistaking. Um, someone's coming to talk to you. It's interesting because he was not a physically commanding uh, person, right? He was sort of slight and seemed, you know, quiet, introspective, but he had that presence, right, without being so, you know, physically overbearing. Uh, we actually made jokes that we thought he could, if he went to um, Kuwait, he could scare the Iraqis out of Kuwait just by telling them to leave. <laughs> Pat LaFontaine and Pat Flatley and I had that conversation on a number of occasions. Just send Al there. He'll tell them they have to leave and they'll leave. Uh, but no, he just he, he just had that ability to have everybody pull the oar in the right direction. And, um, you know, before he passed away, uh, Ray Ferraro, Pat Flatley, and myself, we actually went down to Florida and, and told them exactly that. We, we were not waiting for a funeral. We were going to tell him while he was still alive what we thought of him. And to each of us, he meant everything. And so, uh, and, you know, uh, we showed up and told him what we thought. And that was one of the more special moments in my career. I love that. I, I think uh, it must have meant so much to him. But, yeah, we, you do say so many wonderful things about people when they pass. I, I love when, you know, it's such a shame sometimes when you see figures go into Sports Hall of Fames after they're, they're gone. Like, couldn't you have honored him when he was alive so he could enjoy this? Yeah, would have been a pretty good idea. I think that's what they're going to do to me. Uh, I really do. Uh, I think they'll wait till 2067, and they'll say, that Healy guy, what a bagpiper. Put him in. Uh, Deb, I don't. All right, let me, However, ask, let me ask you this. We're talking about coaches. Who do you think is the best coach in the uh, league today? Oh, boy. Uh, well, from a functionality standpoint and – Asking a coach what he did in 2004 on Tuesday at 11 o'clock with his practice, Mike Babcock would be right up there. Uh, I think the guys love Barry Trotz. I, I really believe that they look at him like Al Arbor. Maybe he doesn't have quite the same presence, but, boy, they just love playing for him. You look at what's going on with the Isles uh, and, and, and what they think of him as a coach. You know, Joel Quenville uh, waiting to get uh, another mother load payday. Hashtag shameless plug. He's going to get lots of money. He, he, you know, he's a guy that you know people listen to. But you know, for the most part, it, like it's a tough job. It's a tough job today. You're almost better to text the guys today and tell them what you want for your game plan than get up in front of them and give them a ten minute meeting because they don't listen. It, and that's no disrespect to them. It's just that's the way our generation is today. But uh, but there's a you know the the coaching has totally changed. I mean, I, I played almost all of my 16-year career, all of it, without a goalie coach. I had a goalie coach my first year in Los Angeles. I won't say his name because it would not be fair. But, <laughs> but he called me Ben for the first half of the season. And I, I kept thinking to myself, Deb, 
should I tell him that that's not my name? Like, it's Glenn, it's not Ben. <laughs> and then at one point, right before Christmas, I finally broke out of my silence and said, you know, my name is Glenn, it's not Ben. <laughs> so, okay, that was my coach. Ben. Okay. All right. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I, I need to get away from coaching. I right. need no coaches. And no. for the rest of my career, we, we really had no goalie coach. With Mike Richter, it was him and I. We worked together on stuff. And when we got to Toronto, it was Curtis Joseph and I. And we'd work together on stuff and support each other and try to find ways to make a difference. So, but the game certainly has changed. Now you've got sleep coaches and heart rate coaches and face-off coaches. Ugh. There's more coaches on the ice with iPads than there are players on the ice with pucks and sticks in their hands. The sleep coach kills me, though. They you know, decide whether it's more beneficial to stay after a game is over and fly the next day or to arrive late, right? It's unbelievable how they prepare. Yep. You, you think it yep. makes a difference? Al Arbor would have no interest in a sleep coach. <laughs> I'm in charge. I will make the decision, and we will go from there. That's, that's the way a coach operates, in my mind. However... Um, you know, I didn't sell a team for $650 million and invest in a team for right. $1.2 billion. So maybe maybe that is an advantage that everybody thinks they can take advantage of. Um, at some point, you know, analytics was, was big. Uh, I would say it's analytics. Uh, <laughs> we are going to go away from that, which we have, and maybe we'll go away from some of these other, you know, kind of voodoo methods that, that make or break a team. What, At the end of the day, there's only one team that lifts the cup anyway. So, What stat is important for you for goalies? You know, whether it's an analytic stat or an old-fashioned stat, what, what is important for you when you look at goalies around the league? Are you playing in June? If you're playing in June, you've done it right because you're in the Stanley Cup final. But how do you know if you're going to draft and, a goalie and, or and trade for a goalie? you know you're playing in June. You look up at the banners at the back of the rink, and there's no other game on the wall. You're it. You go in September and October and you look up at the banners on the back of any arena, uh, Tampa Bay 5, Washington 4, Toronto 3, Tampa Bay 2. Well, there's lots of games on the go tonight. This is amazing. Wow. Oh, Toronto's winning against Tampa Bay in Tampa? That's amazing. You get to the Stanley Cup final. There's no other game. It is just you. You're it. And, uh, and that doesn't go without notice. Who was the best goalie, do you think, in your era? Other than myself, yes. I can't vote for myself. No, clearly, you cannot right? vote for yourself. That's no, disqualified. No, that, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be particularly. Uh, it'd be awkward. Uh, <laughs> you know, I I don't know. Uh, Patrick Waugh and Marty Berdur have to be the two guys that, you know, when I look two hundred feet down the ice, don't make a mistake because they ain't going to make one. So you make a mistake and it's one nothing. Chances are it's going to kind of settle here. I, I remember playing Patrick Waugh. And, semifinals when he was with Montreal. His goals against was lower in that series than mine was when I played with the Holy Redeemer Flyers <laughs> when I was eight years old. <laughs> and I maybe had four shots on that. Maybe. Could have had five. It was a wide, but no, he stopped it anyways. We'll give him five shots. His goals against was minuscule. And I can still recall looking down the ice thinking, what am I doing here? Can we start summer early? We don't have a chance. And we really didn't. But those are two. I mean, this is Lamborghini, Ferrari. These, these are the best of the best. Hol the Holy Redeemer Flyers? That might yeah. be my favorite team yeah. name ever. I, I still have the sweater. Oh. Don't quite fit anymore, but uh, still have the sweater. Yeah. 
That's Amazing. classic. What you know, you know you're in trouble when you're saying the rosary before a game. <laughs> it, you really shouldn't you just rely on talent. I don't know. Uh, but, but those are good times. Actually, the Holy Redeemer Flyers, three guys on that hockey team, Billy Carroll, Dirk Ruder, and Glenn Healy, all made the NHL. That's crazy. Uh, what town? Dirk Ruder played a little bit with Buffalo. Billy Carroll won a number of Stanley Cups. And Billy Carroll's dad... He was my first coach. Was that Ajax Pickering? Where'd you, where did uh, you? We're even going. Like it's so long ago, Deb. They changed the name of the town. It used to be Bay Ridges. Now it's Pickering. Okay. Okay. So we've changed the name of the town now. Like <laughs> no one even remembers. They've taken all our record books and thrown them away. Uh, but but yeah, no, that was amazing to have that level of team and have three guys make the NHL. Uh, and to this day, you know, I still see those guys and. We, we, I mean, the buzzer system, yeah, did it work? Well, it made me a goalie. There we go. Remember? Two minutes. Time to change. He hasn't touched a puck yet. Get off. Who's the best goalie you think in the league today? Who do you like watching? Hmm. Um, Gosh. I mean, there's so many good ones. Are we having a bit of a renaissance? uh, I mean, there are a lot of really good goalies right now. Yeah, and, uh, you know, game's changed. I mean, I can remember – just a month ago, we were in Edmonton, and it was Mike Vernon, Grant Fuhrer, and myself. And I, I, I can recall like three of us having a good chat and thinking, "We're all like five foot eight. What happened? Did these guys like eat a bunch of vegetables or something, and now they're all six foot eight? Right, right. So, evolution of the gear, making it so much lighter. You know, pads aren't twenty-one pounds; they're four pounds. That totally has changed the game, and so now guys are you know six seven, six eight, but. I mean, I love watching a Lundquist. I do. Um, we, I joke with the Rangers that before they hang a sweater and they're after, I'm going to change the name of the back of the sweater. It's going to say Healy instead of Lundquist. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he's a guy who's kind of stood the test of time. Uh, but, but that position has evolved more than any other position. And as a result now, you know, any good coach has a good goalie. Any fired coach has a bad goalie. And, it, 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 the difference between making the playoffs and not making the playoffs may start between the pipes, may start with a save percentage in the 929 range, 930 range, and any coach that doesn't make it, and it's simply uh, come down to maybe one win a month, could just be what's between the pipes and whether your goaltender saves the day or not. And uh, so th- that position more than any is probably the most important. So you won the Stanley Cup with the Rangers. Uh, I wanted to ask you. Oh, I forgot about that. Did we? <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, now I remember. Yes, Deb. Yes. Yes, that cup. Yes, okay. yes. Speaking of yeah. the Rangers, what did you do with your day with the cup? Did they have, like, you get your day with the cup then? I think the, the Rangers almost, your year, you all took it one day, and that's how the tradition started. Um, no, Kiprios had it for the whole year. <laughs> And so we didn't really get it. No one got a chance to have the day with the cup because uh, Kipper had it the whole year. He won the cup more than Richard. I don't know if you knew that. But when I was on the team with him, I recognized it. No, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, – we actually – I'm really proud of this because, you know, when you talk about, like, job numbers in the States and employment, with the New York Rangers, we employed – three people from the Hockey Hall of Fame to work the rest of their life and go on the <laughs> oh, 99 true. days with the cup and travel with it everywhere it goes. Russia, Finland, Sweden, they see more parties than anybody because of us. More parties than even probably Glenn Healy. Yes, uh, uh, because <laughs> we basically demolished the cup. Uh, at one point, the top was off of it, 
and one of the players, who I will not name, basically soldered the top back on the cup with lead solder. <laughs> Covered up about 12 names. <laughs> Probably not a good thing. And so, as a result, Phil Pritchard and his group uh, travel with the cup now as security everywhere that cup goes. So I'm really proud that I've provided employment for three Canadians. This is a proud moment for me. It, it was yeah, because my of- day with the cup consisted of, uh, and it was crazy. I picked it up at the South Street Seaport in New York. And they just handed it to me. Okay, bye. Because basically, for any, anyone who doesn't know, the, the cup was unprotected <laughs> before the Rangers had it. In other words, it didn't have, it didn't have anybody watching over nope. it. It just was you know, on its own, and so you guys quickly ended that. We ended that, yeah. yeah. Wild, wild okay. west. So they just handed sure. it to you, and you were off and running. Yeah. So drove to Long Island, um, at which point, uh, and I won't name the police force because they might get in trouble, a helicopter picked me up with the cup, and we did a little tour of Manhattan with the cup which is kind of neat. A uh, little day at the golf course, went to Canada. We took the Stanley Cup to... You crossed the border. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and wheeled up to the border, and the gentleman at the border said, you know, not, did you have a Nexus card, or it just said, what's in the big blue case? <laughs> I said, the Stanley Cup. And he looked at me and said, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. You're good. You don't want to look in the case? Like, it could be a body in the case, Right. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, went across the border, took it to my, my dad's house, took it to my mother-in-law's house. I took it to the Legion in Pickering, uh, which mattered the most. I took it to the sponsor that sponsored our team all the years that I played, and that was certainly spectacular. Then I took it to the Ajax Hospital, where if it was a code blue or a code red, didn't matter. Every doctor was around the cup with me, so just don't worry about it. And then had a party that night, and then I took it to Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto and was fully exhausted and said, please, somebody, take this. <laughs> Off <laughs> my so hands. <laughs> Help me. And that, that was my day with the cup. What do you remember when you, about when you lifted the cup? You know, I, I think the biggest thing that I, I thought of was just, to me, what mattered was it's all of your family that sacrificed for you to do this. Like, your, uh, my sister, let's be honest, she got screwed. She, she got nothing, right? New pads, new stick, new skates. All right. Sorry, Christmas isn't coming this year for the rest of you guys. Like, they, they all had to sacrifice. My parents, same, you know, you've given up pretty much everything for your kid to do what he wants to do. And so, you know, winning it, it's your last name. So, you know, I thought to me it was, it was just more than me. It was everybody in our family. And, and your name, your last name, goes on it forever. Like, they don't take it off. Well, well maybe, maybe take off one of the bands in about 50 years, but, but it stays forever. And that, to me, was the most special thing. Like, our whole family got to celebrate um, the, the championship. So that, that's what I thought of when it went over my head. And then, okay, how do we get a beer? Because this is really cool. <laughs> I'm going to go celebrate with my teammates. Yeah. Okay, so, take this off of me. Um, I need but, a beer now. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. The um, the so after the playing days, so the the next phase is is the broadcasting phase. Yeah, Ooh. and that worked out good. I'm not doing that now. <laughs> so it's interesting, even you know, for anyone who's listening to you now, that there isn't anyone that you meet uh, that doesn't have a laugh or smile when you say Glenn Healy. You were very polarizing on the air as a broadcaster, but you are not that way off the air. Why do you think that is? 
I like it because they listened. How many times you watch a game? It's like Charlie Brown's teacher speaking. <laughs> Neutral zone shift, pushback shift, stick in the right lane. Who cares? Like, give me something. You know, we, we looked at it with Hockey Night in Canada. You had to be three things. You had to be authentic. So stop being a phony. You had to be Canadian because that's what we're – Canada's watching. And you had to be entertaining. It was the ace principle of our show. And, uh, and you know what? Hey, I, I I'm, could be wrong, but that's the way I am in life, too. I'm going to tell you what I think. And if you like it, great. If you don't, you really don't have to hang around with me. Right? There's lots of things you can do on any given day. So, yeah, there was polarizing moments and uh, fun moments. I, I loved it. Uh, you know, we created that broadcast position between the benches. That was 2005. During the lockout, we started that. And I can recall sitting with a radar gun in my hand between the benches, seeing what slap shots were from the point. Now we've got these companies that are doing tracking devices now. It's a multi-million dollar industry. Just put me between the benches with a radar gun. That's fine. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so I had a great time doing that. Hockey Night Can obviously is a great broadcast. I worked with some of the best broadcasters ever to work in this game. Bob Cole, Don Whitman, and Shirley Najak is the best producer in the sport. Thoroughly loved it and, and had probably the time of my life uh, in, in a lot of ways. I can recall the first game that I did, I was watching Yerry Curry's sweater get raised, and Don Whitman looked at me, at, we were on the air, and he said to me as he pushed his mute button, hey, stupid, put your headset on. <laughs> oh, you were just watching. Watching, I'm a fan. Uh, and then, you know, first whistle comes, and if you recall, they put up the lines, right? They put all the lines up, you know, Gretzky with Messi and Curry, and, and it goes up for, honestly, a tenth of a second. Right. Okay, and I said, okay, they just wasted 15 seconds of the viewer's time putting these lines up that no one can read, unless you're a speed reader. So, but stay tuned. We're going to put the next <laughs> line up on the next whistle. Right. And we've got a call from the executive producer of Hockey Night Canada telling me, you can't do that. You can't say that. Oh, you actually said that on the air. Oh, I said it on the air, yeah. Oh. That, was, that was the start of my career. So here we go. Well, first of all, Start there, it up. there is a, a saying that in TV that I you know, totally agree with. If you have two people on the air that agree, there's no reason to have one of them. You only need one. Right. So, and and I'm so with you, and I think most people are. They do want to be entertained, and they do want strong opinion. What's the fine line? Um, Maybe it's not fine. I don't know. I think uh, you work hard all week, and, you know, you sit down on a, in in Canada on a Saturday night, and you better bring me something, because I got the clicker in my hand. And if the clicker stays at the station you're at, you've won. Uh, it, it, it is not Twitter that decides who goes on the air or not goes on the air. Twitter is poison. It is whether the clicker stays and there are 2 million people on a Saturday that want to watch Hockey Night in Canada. And if that continues, then you've done the right thing. And for the most part, for you know 60-plus years, that has been the case here in Canada. I probably first met you when I first went to the Islanders as the TV host, and, and I was doing that. And it wasn't so long ago you had finished, but I totally heard stories about the Heels and Flat show. Like, every people oh, no. were still talking about Please it. Please tell I, me the tapes are, are, first, are long, long I have seen tapes. They have saved oh, tapes. Could you burn them for me? Uh, how did that get started? And for anyone who doesn't know, t- tell us what you know how, how it got started and what it was, you and Pat Flatley. Doing T, I mean, you were broadcasting – 
and and doing that while you were playing, or was it after? No, it was while you were. No, we were playing. Yeah, you were playing. Yeah, we were. Uh, we were absolute stars on one of the worst teams in the league. It was an amazing story. Um, Kevin Meininger, who, right? Uh, who was my Islander producer forever, and is still ever, at MSG Network. Yeah. yeah, demented mind, really skewed, <laughs> needs lots of help. We're going to get him into a home soon. We are. I'm working on it. He said to us, "What do you think about the first intermission, Heels and Flat Show?" come on and you tell us stories about you know, being a player and what it's like to be a player. And, and Flats and I um, clearly need to be in a home with Kevin. So <laughs> we're second and third in line. We said, yeah, we'll do this. And our competition was Stan Fischler. <laughs> okay, so we didn't have any competition. Like, I mean, we could have gone on there and played the penny whistle, and we would have been on first intermission. Okay? I could have whistled and been on the first intermission. So uh, on we go. And Stan's going to call you after he hears that, by the way. He I listens. Know, I love uh, yeah, we love he, Stan. You know, he's yes, you're kid. The okay. legend. Yes. All right, go ahead. Yeah. And uh, so we did it. And we basically uh, had more fan mail about the Heels and Flat Show than when I played. I don't even know if they knew I played. They just <laughs> thought I was the first intermission group. Right. <laughs> so we, we tried it. It, it was, uh, we had a live studio audience, it was really just our friends. Um, it just it was one of those stupid things that people in New York loved. And it's 25 years later, and two Saturdays ago, uh, we were with John Ledecky, the owner of the Islanders. He invited us to his box for an Islander game, and Hockey Night in Canada ran a piece of the Heels and Flat show. Clearly I've gained some weight. Clearly I've got more gray hair. But clearly that was the stupidest show on TV. And they interviewed us, and, and then nothing has changed because I made, I think, a really gracious statement about tradition and hockey, and the Flats proceeded to rip me to shreds, which is exactly the way it was on the show, and we're great friends to this day. But it, it certainly was an indication that we are finally seeing a little bit more of it now, and you were certainly like this on Hockey Night in Canada, but but fans and viewers who watch this really want to see the real you. Like, today they're really hearing you and it is authentic, and you guys were just being yourselves. And there is nothing better than seeing that side of you, which is really the real side of you. Yeah, I, you know, I think we crossed the line, though, when we, we said that they should just pave the prairie provinces so people in Ontario can park their cars. <laughs> like, I think we really <laughs> crossed the line. Um, when we talked about Quebec separating from Canada and letting them go and then <laughs> buying them back when they're bankrupt, that crossed the line. So, yeah, we... we Crossed the line in a lot of topics. Uh, we were authentic, I can tell you that. Um, and uh, no one escaped our, our ire, that's for sure. But, um, yeah, you know what, you, you look back on it now, and, and Kevin had an idea, and he was way, like, honest, way ahead of the game, knew what people wanted to see, and, and so I'll give Kevin full credit for it. And I just hope that all the tapes are burnt. That's yeah, all I well, care Well, they still exist, and, yes, definitely, uh, he was ahead of his time. The... Um, I mean, we could do this all day. We, uh, I do want to ask you about um, the phase you're in now, which is the executive director. You have a fancy title of the oh, NHL fancy, Alumni yes. Association. But we are really hearing such good things. You, you know, the alums seem very happy. I, I don't want to characterize that if I'm wrong, but um, you have made quite a difference, it sounds like. What was the biggest problem you saw when you first took over? What were alums, you know, maybe unhappy about? What did you want to do when you first got there? Well, I think everybody in every business needs a mission statement. And the mission statement should be this for us. Honor the past. The guys who have built the game, the guys who paved the roads that I drove on, uh, the guys that have made a difference to 
to build this great game that you and I are looking at today as a $5 billion industry, honor the past and take care of them. And every day my feet hit the ground, and that's what I'm there to do. The Alumni Association may never, ever help me, ever. I'm okay, you know, long career. We got paid some pretty good money. Broadcasting's been great. My life's okay. But there are players that transition and fall through the cracks. And they're sad stories. And I don't get calls from the players. I get calls from the wives. I get calls from the kids where they say, I want dad back. That's what I'm there for every day, to get dad back, to get people that have transitioned, fall through the cracks, get them back on track and honor the past. And that's what we do every day. And there are the, the strength of what we are, our players, where people buy in. Mario buys in. Wayne buys in. Uh, Matt Sundin buys in, Curtis Joseph buys in, Bobby Hall buys in, Brett Hall buys in. They, they buy in because they know we're like the Marines. You, you know, you're never leave a man behind. And that's what players want to do. Players want to help players. And that's the strength of our system. So it's not complicated. It's very simple. It's players helping players. And that's what we're doing. And to me, of all the things in my life, and I thought this would be the hardest, Deb, it has been the easiest because of the players. The first thing I thought of when you said we have to honor the past, I'm thinking in my mind, the players playing now, you know, so you are sort of, you know, your audience is the alumni association in your, in your job, but how do you reach the players of today who are making millions and millions of dollars and many millions more than most made over the last 50 years? Are are they, do, do they see the need to honor the past? Are you reaching them? Are they helping? Have they bought in? Is that part of the mission is to get today's players to buy in? Um, pick a locker room, any locker room, and let me walk in with Mario and Wayne, and we'll see if those guys stand up to attention. Really? <laughs> you don't think they're going to go, what has just walked in my room? So have you that, started that, that process yet? Oh, or yeah, that? we, we okay. started that process, yes. Okay. And it's, you know, that, that to me is the, is the strength, right? You know, these guys, you know, you know if you're 70, maybe Daryl Sittler is your guy, right? If you're 60, uh might be Matt Sundin. If you're 50, it might be Doug Gilmore. If you're 40, it might be Curtis Joseph. There's a, there's a player, a person, for every generation that is your guy. If it, and I, I've watched a guy who, who's worth $10 billion hold a cell phone and videotape Yvonne Cornway talking <laughs> about his playing days in Montreal. Yeah. You're worth $10 billion. Do you really have to videotape this? Like, <laughs> No, that's he's a fan too. That's your experience. They're yeah. they're they're fans of what has built the game, and and so yeah, no, it, it's getting to the guys, it, it, it's it's not difficult. Players are players. We we put our skates on the same way as Richard did, as Beliveau did, and uh, and it's not difficult. They get it. And one day, I don't care if they made seventy million, they might not know what they want to do in the next phase when their feet hit the ground in the morning. And they need a purpose. That, that call me. We'll get you a purpose. Last thing. What What do you want to do in the next phase? Or how long do you see yourself doing this before you move on to the next phase? Well, after this interview, I'm retiring <laughs> from everything. So just erase everything I've said. Uh, you know what? I, we're going to get this thing built for. So the players are set up for the next 20 years. Uh, we're We're close already. We are. Get it built, and uh, and then we'll see. I could be between the benches. I could be back on the set with you, and I could wreck your career. Let's go. Yes, I would. The best thing ever. Yes. Um, But 
you know, I never really, you know, everyone has like, okay, here's my 100 days and 90 days and 60 days. I don't have that. Like, how are we going to make things better today? And then we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And that's the way I, I kind of look at it. But each of the things that I've done, uh, whether it's work for the Players Association, work for uh, the, you know, Hockey Night Canada, or play in the NHL, they've all been rewarding. So uh, I, I can't say that there's a part that I wish I would have taken back. It's all been rewarding. You know, one other thing I do hear about you is that you're no dummy. Well, that I know. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. Is my wife here? (laughs) He didn't say I was a dummy. Is that that right? No, she's nodding no. Okay, no, I'm kidding. But but you have a great uh, summer cottage and a great spot on the lake, and and do you get some downtime? Do you ever see yourself uh, going there or retiring, or do you think you're going to be in hockey? You're, You're a hockey lifer? Yeah, I retired four times, <laughs> and I got sucked back into the into the uh, cortex or whatever you want to call it. I, I keep getting sucked back, but um, life's good now, right? Three girls. Do they play? Which, they play hockey. What are they doing? N- no, they decided they're dance smart was enough to be yeah. dance. Like, oh my gosh, if I sit through one more dance recital, that I am going to quit everything. Uh, but no, they they dance. They're you know. Great kids. We spent, you know, when it, when the career ended, it was okay. Now time to commit to the family. You're right. We settled here in Ajax. Uh, had coaching opportunities and general manager opportunities, and decided never to move, stay here, do this, commit to the family, and spend the next whatever. I was. I retired at 40, so from 40 to dead, uh, my time is theirs. Well, thank you for this time today. You made us laugh as always. And uh, look forward to seeing what you do uh, as you continue your work with the alumni. And um, next time it's last call. Can you bring one for the rest of us? Uh, no. No, I, it's all about me. <laughs> me. Selfish time. You're the best. Right? Thank me you. Time. Yeah, Thanks, you're the best. Thanks, Glenn. Right. Thanks for having okay. me. Okay. Cheers. For sure, one of our favorite podcasts so far, Glenn Healy, the executive director of the NHL Alumni Association and obviously a longtime stand-up comic. As always, you can subscribe to the Executive Suite. It's a free download. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Audio Boom, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And drop us a review if you'd like. We'd love to have your feedback. Let us know what you think. I'm Deb Placey. Until next time in the NHL Executive Suite.